Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish and want to keep safe, but they also have to pick one thing that they rather wish they could forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the director and writer, Gary Signor. Gary is an experienced international and award-winning filmmaker, having trained at the National Film and TV School and graduating with a BAFTA-nominated short, The Unkindest Cut. His feature film, Leon the Pig Farmer, won numerous awards, including the London Critics Circle and Evening Standard Awards, as well as the International Critics Prize at the Venice Film Festival and the Chaplin Award at the Edinburgh Film Festival, and is still regarded as a defining UK-Jewish comedy that appealed to a global audience. His next two British films were Solitaire for Two and Stiff Upper Lips, before he moved to the US to direct The Bachelor. He subsequently returned to the UK and set up Magnet Films with Sir David Frost. After making family comedy Bob the Butler with Tom Green and Brooke Shields, he made In Your Dreams with Dexter Fletcher and Linda Hamilton. In 2016, he wrote and directed his first play, Not Moses, in London's West End at the Arts Theatre. He also made improvisation football comedy United We Fall, before writing and directing a psychological drama thriller, The Unseen, which in 2019 was released in the US as Amorosis. His latest work is a sitcom, Hapless, in which he returns to the style of comedy of his first film, Leon the Pig Farmer. Hapless is available on Netflix and has been streaming on there since November 2021. Series 2 was shot in 2022 and stars such luminaries as Tim Downey, Jeannie Spark, Sally Phillips, Ronnie Ancona, Josh Howey and me, which is why I was able to persuade Gary to reveal the five things from his life he'd like to put in a time capsule. I hope you enjoy it. Just so you know, I've got five things that I'd like to talk about in terms of keeping. Okay. Everything else I would ditch. <laughs> You've only found five things you like. My list of things to bury just sort of like going on and on and on. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, uh, I have to rein this in because there's just too many. <laughs> we will see. We'll see how we get on. Fantastic. Okay, Gary, let's find out what the first thing is then. So the first thing, I think I should start with music from the 1970s and 80s. Fantastic. So it's partly a northern thing because I'm from Manchester. And so, look, there are certain things I love, like um, 
I love disco, right? Disco was me in the 1970s. YMCA, how could you possibly go wrong with YMCA? You put it on, it's hilarious. It's just a joy. <laughs> you play it to kids, it's fantastic. You play it to adults, everyone loves YMCA. Um, I had a thing to say as well because it was from the gay community. So it was at that time, it was great. But that whole thing about disco, and then you had songs like Hotel California, you know, the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, those things are perennial. They just don't lose their joy. No. Uh, so there was a point, I think, where I annoyed people because I said, I'm quite happy with the music that I've got. I don't really need anyone to make any more music because I've got all the music that I could possibly listen to in my life. I'll ring Ed Sheeran and Adele and tell them. I quite like George Ezra. I like George Ezra's list. I think he's... Okay. I think but it comes to the things that I really identified were three things, and this is to do with being Northern and British and all the rest of it, which we'll come, we'll, I'm sure I'll end up coming back to. But Lily the Pink, right? Lily the Pink is a fantastic, cheery Northern song, right? <laughs> we'll drink a drink a drink to Lily the Pink. It's not in any sense, beyond the UK. It's just for our market, right? Yeah. But it's for us, and that's perfectly fine. And I love that. I love the fact that it's quintessentially associated with us. And there's some blokes from the North invented Lily. I think it was Paul McCartney's brother, Mike McCartney, mm-hmm. who came up with the Lily Pink. And its roots, I think, were in the... It was an army song from the First World War originally. But you can put it on to kids, and they just enjoy it. It's silly and fun. Yeah. And adults can hum along to it, and it's great. Yeah, Jennifer Eccles. And wonderful freckles, exactly. Mm. And then with Lily Pink, and it was from the same era, you've got matchstalk men and matchstalk cats and dogs. Now, I lived in a while for Los Angeles. I made a, you know, I lived there for three years, and I used to drive around in a convertible golf playing. Uh, and the opening line is, uh, he paints his Salford smoky tops on cardboard boxes from the shops, parts <laughs> of ankles where, and I used to hum it wherever I was going because it got into your head. And it was like, you know, it's about Larry, but it was quintessentially British. And that's where I was brought up in Manchester. And it was just embedded yourself, but it also went wide. Like everyone knew it across the UK. I think it got to number one. Yeah. The last one is part of the union. I think that they should adopt that. The unions, the the railway unions and the NHS should turn part of the union into an anthem and it would get to number one again and we'd all be singing, you can't break me, I'm part of the union, you can't break me, I'm part of the union. You know, I mean, that's that's a way of spreading, if you like, the seriousness of the issue that we're facing through song and everyone getting behind it. And I just think... Those songs were, I don't know, they've, they've embedded themselves in my head, and I think they're silly but relevant, and I like that. They are absolutely, aren't they? Because each of them, surprisingly, underneath it all, has quite a serious message. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Larry was the guy who couldn't come down to London. It says, uh, what is it? Um, London started calling to come on down and wear the old flat cap. They said, tell us all about your ways and all about them Salford days. And it's that sort of snobbishness of London mm-hmm. towards anyone from the north which I'm absolutely certain still exists. You know, we've got our bubbles, and then everything else is outside of that bubble. Yes. And I sort of miss that northern humour. There was a lot of very funny stuff that came out of Liverpool. You know, there was a lot of really good comedy that came out of the north. I'd not really thought about this, Gary, but I've always assumed that your comedy was really based almost entirely in the fact that you're Jewish. No, I'm not. But are you not? (laughs) You don't look Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) But now I think about it, yeah, that is that directness of the line. The fact that people ask a question and people then just answer it with the answer rather than go around the shops. Yeah, you just you say it how it is. Mm. I mean, I love going back to Manchester, you know, you get greeted by Hello Chuck and all this sort of thing. But those songs had a real effect on me. They're lowbrow and fun and silliness is a good thing. You're right. We should get in touch with the train unions and say to them, you should be playing this over the tannoy just yeah. before you go into the strike. Because everybody's walking around thinking, oh, bloody hell, my commute is ruined. And they should be playing that to say to people, no, look, we are doing the one thing we can, which is withdrawing our labour. Right. And you'd be doing it with an element of humour that would cheer people up and would bind us together. And even if you're you know, a diehard Tory, you know, playing part of the union, is <laughs> not necessarily going to kill you. No. No, I think it's a good idea. They could play that, and then I would almost certainly follow it up with YMCA. 
<laughs> I used to love it when I went to family parties. And, of course, I knew that it was a song about gay men meeting at the YMCA, but none of my relatives ever did, my aunts and uncles. And I used to love the fact they'd all stand there singing It's Fun to Stay at the YMCA and joining in. There's a place you can go if you're short on your dough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, I just think it was a fun element. And you found it also in group, on the more serious level, groups like 10CC, again from Manchester, who would mm. do songs like Life is a Minestrone put together with Parmesan cheese or whatever it is. They're like oddball kind of songs, but they come up music with humour. The same studio, I think, strangely enough, 10CC and the Straubs, part of the union. I think they recorded at Strawberry Studios in Stockport. Ah, it's not far away from where I come from. There you are. It's a brilliant place. But of course, you also did... In a similar line, I know you may not want to, but, you know, with uh, your chicken song, <laughs> and also um, from around that time, I'd never met a nice South African, that mm-hmm. song introduced, I mean, we all knew about apartheid, but it really raised it to a level where everyone was singing, I never met a nice South African. And that was, you know, it's how you sort of get a message across. Of course, you've got your serious stuff, but that was also a very catchy number that had a point behind it. Yeah, but you and I will both agree, without a doubt, that comedy is a very good way, I think, of getting a point across. Although Ben Elton thought he was going to bring down Margaret Thatcher, and I don't think he did. No. But it helps to have it pointed out, doesn't it? It does. You know, I think we've got to a stage sometimes where the comedy, where, you know, it's very divided at the moment, isn't it? You can either have um, this or um, that. Mm. And um, I don't know that that's got that northern feel to it. The northern people, Mancunians would sort of go, hang on one second. Uh, you're not that, you know, I'm not, and I'm not that. Uh, I'm somewhere in, you know, I'm like, so I, I just think that, you know, so long as you're not too definitive and think that you're the only voice, mm. that helps. But certainly comedy can bring stuff into the arena. And I think it should, to be honest. I mean, if I do something in film and it just passes you by, I feel I've failed, you know. <laughs> but what you want to do is have people talk about it afterwards. They go, oh, yeah. what about that? You know, that was that was quite interesting, you know. And, uh, obviously, they did that with Life of Brian, which was enormous, but addressed issues. And I'd hate to think that it was possible that people say, we can't make that today, because you should absolutely be able to make that today. Yeah. I like a joke that either creates a laugh, a sort of a, an unexpected laugh where people guffaw because they're so surprised by the fact that people have done the joke, or it makes people go the other way and, and take an intake of breath. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Either one. Either one is good. I'm not a fan <laughs> of wry humour. Whenever I see mm. rye, I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's going to be a bit quiet, isn't it? <laughs> That's a tentative smile you might get out of me. Yes. And I, no, I like a big laugh. The thing is, because I started my career in film, so you actually got the chance to go to a cinema and hear people laughing with someone like Leon the Pig Farmer. And I used wow. to go to the cinema every opportunity I got when that film was on. Because mm. you hear the laughter, you know when it's coming. Yeah. And that's a great choice. And you don't, you know, I don't really have that with Hapless because. You know, I mean, we are going to have a screening of a couple of episodes in a theatre, I think, just because, you know, I want to hear the audience feedback. Yeah, quite. You don't really know when it's on TV whether people are laughing or not. So go around the houses and sort of say, can I pop in and watch you watch Hapless? <laughs> it's one method, but, but I think getting an audience together is a good idea. And I, I do hold out hope that you will get that reaction. You will get some people going, oh, and other people going, oh. I hope so. Brilliant. Okay, I'm going to put those 70s songs, but generally all 70s music, apart from Gary Glitter, into the time capsule for you. Okay, that's the first thing, Gary. Right, let's move on to number two. Number two, I think, is going to be my house. So, um, first of all, on a serious point, I'm very lucky to live in a house, which is, uh, is mortgaged, but it's our house, right? So the house is family. Over there, I've got, there's a wedding photo. Over there, there's too many bottles of unopened alcohol, but I, 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 am, I am Jewish. Um, so up there is a clapperboard. So this house is sort of loaded with memories of my family, my wife and my kids. I've got four kids, so two younger ones, two older ones. And without it, I mean, during the pandemic, you just felt for all of those people who didn't have an outside space and, you know, just the immense fortune that I have to be able to, you know, to have gone into the garden, knowing that there were people who were literally in a flat with no outside access. And um, that sort of brings it all home to you. 
So I love the fact that we have a house um, and that there are many, many memories that get built up over the course of time in it. But obviously, it's also our set. So (laughs) it's also an inspiration for a lot of the scenes in Hapless. So when I start writing any script, I know that I've got this house as one of the main locations. Mm. And so it's more than just a house. It's also a a sort of inspiration uh, for where I can set things. Well, I wonder how many people listening would be able to say to their spouses, um, oh, you know my job? Um, We're all going to come and do it here for 10 weeks (laughs) in this house, the place you call home. (laughs) It wasn't great. It's two series we've done now. The other thing, of course, is because the genius character only has one son and I have a son and a daughter and my son plays the son, So Mm. all photos of him is absolutely fine. I can keep that there. There's a photo of my son. But my poor daughter, you know, we have to go around. (laughs) Okay, no, not that, not that. Take that out. Any photos (laughs) of a girl, uh, you know, go around. And I'm definitely looking for, I think in series one somewhere, I had an evening standard award in the pack of shots. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I don't know where it is. Well, luckily, nobody knows what an evening standard award looks like. So your poor daughter was cut out of your life in order to film. She was made to feel completely insignificant and uh, and traumatised by it. Yeah. That's good. I cast as a chess player in one of the episodes. Yeah. Because otherwise, I really was going to get it in the neck. Um, (laughs) So the house is just, you know, you're just so fortunate to have a, a roof over your head. Mm. And we're in a very, very lucky position, and it makes you think about all the people who, who who aren't in that position. Yeah. What was your position when you were younger, when you lived in Manchester? Oh, in Manchester, you see, we were six kids in our family. Wow. We had a big old house in Didsbury. They bought it for what was then, you know, extraordinary small amounts of money. And everyone got a bedroom. Apart from me, I had to share my brother. Are you the youngest or the middle? I'm four down. So I was youngest for a long time and then edged out in favour of the younger ones. (laughs) But yeah, I've also lived in Finchley an enormous amount. Every time I come to London, I end up living in Finchley. I've lived in like five different houses or flats in the Finchley area. I did burn a house down once (laughs) with Hanukkah candles, of all things, in Finchley, um... That was bad. (laughs) The last night of Hanukkah, you've got eight tiny little candles in a really badly made candlestick thing that was, you know, cheaply made. You couldn't get the candles properly. Anyway, uh, anyway, we lit the candles and then went off to the kitchen. And, you know, the next thing I knew, the fire alarm had gone off. And the house literally went up in flames. Wow. You know, I was trying to put this fire out with a blanket, you know, and it was like huge amounts of smoke were pouring. I mean, everything just went up. But the funny thing with that is it was rented. I went into the estate agent the following morning. <laughs> I was like covered in soot. And I said, really, really sorry, but we had a fire last night and that. Not an easy conversation, but we, we burnt the house down. <laughs> and the estate agent looked at me and said, but you're right. And I said, yeah. He said, so you'd be looking for somewhere to live then. Something came on the market this morning. <laughs> Great concern for his service. (laughs) One down, but let's see if we can get him something else. Yeah, it's slightly pricier. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm the only person I know, and it comes to hapless again, who has literally burnt their house down with Hanukkah candles. I mean, (laughs) it's mortifying that I am that dangerous. It was terrifying. <laughs> That's what happens when you put down a paper tablecloth. Wasn't the tablecloth the fucking candles? <laughs> look, look, these candles, look. I know what a Hanukkah candle holder looks like. The candles are that big. They're tiny. They're like birthday cake candles. Something like this. Look at this. That's shit. That, <laughs> that if you put eight of those in there, right, that's nice. It's a death trap. It's a death trap. <laughs> it's a death trap. Eight little candles in there, nine, including this one. These are a disaster. <laughs> anyway, I'm not a big fan of Hanukkah. It's in an episode. I've written an episode of Hapless Series 3. Brilliant. Not fire, but Hanukkah. Oh, fantastic. I Hanukkah and Christmas. Many times in my life I wish I were Jewish. Jewish people can do it serious, to be honest. And they get very antsy about, like, so, because there are so many different types of Jewish people. So if you go out for dinner... They're going to say you go to a restaurant with someone who's Jewish. Uh, and then you say, well, I'm, I'm kosher at home, but I'll eat a steak out, uh, right? And, and then someone will go, well, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. If you're going to be kosher at home, I'm ordering a lobster. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> lobster. 
you're not kosher. No, I know, but I'm not kosher, but in a different way to you not being. And then someone's like, oh, how can you have a steak? And someone else is like, you can't put milk and meat together. And everyone's like, ah! And you know, like, you know, with, with someone who's who's Christian, they basically go, would you like me not to order the lobster? And I go, oh, that's very nice of you. Mm. But a Jewish person will absolutely order the lobster because they don't give a fuck. <laughs> There you are. That's why I like them. (laughs) I think it's a great religion in the sense that they are so certain of it that they feel no need to go out and bring people into it. Yeah, I mean, it's set up as a non-proselytising religion. Mm. And in that, it differs quite specifically from Christianity. If you look at the roots of Christianity, they specifically set up Christianity when the, the first churches got together. Yeah. They said, okay, right, so we're going to squash the Jews in a way because we want to edge them out. But actually, the people we care about is everyone else. Yeah, We're going to convert all these people. And Judaism never said that. It always said, it says somewhere in the Torah, you'll always be few in number. Mind you, somewhere else it says you'll be like the sand on the beach. <laughs> Take it, you will, the word of God. Yes, I don't think so. No, probably not, but never mind. All right, let's put that in. That's only my second. Okay, well, you've got another three to go. Three more good things, that's what you're saying. Um, Because I have a really crap memory, I've never had a good memory. I've never been able to absorb information, but I love moments. Right. And I can remember moments. And when I think of the films that I love, I think of the moments within the films that I love. And the film with the best moments is the, or the most great moments mm. tends to be the film that I really like. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that sort of realisation moment where something happens. But in terms of like the history of my life, there was that moment when the Israelis managed to save the people in Entebbe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we had a situation where there were terrorists holding people, holding Israelis on the other end of Africa. And again, the country, this country, probably the world, was going, what the fuck? And they flew unbelievably, put themselves into, you know, I mean, they're the army, so fine, but they put themselves into halfway. They put a, an Idi Amin, because he was holding hostages in, in Uganda, mm. they put an Idi Amin Mercedes into the plane and flew that plane off to Uganda, landed it at Entebbe, and then they got out and they had a guy pretending to be the Idi Amin and they drove through and all the soldiers were like saluting. Wow. And of course, they wiped them out at that point. But they managed to save all those people who were being held. And it was just a moment when you woke up the next morning and everyone, know, Jewish, not Jewish, everyone mm-hmm. was out on the streets basically going, fucking hell, little man, well done. <laughs> it was like a, a moment. And the other one that got me equally, and I saw this a film about this recently, was the saving of those 13 kids in the cave. Yeah. It's just extraordinary, the heroism. I mean, the tension that we all felt, that the whole world felt for those 13 kids. Well, I remember feeling a certainty that they weren't going to be saved. Yeah. And just sitting and waiting for the awful news. It was going to be bad news. Mm. And the heroism of those divers, they were swimming underwater with scuba diving for like six hours. Terrifying. And you just think these are, in inverted commas, normal people. They're not celebrities or whatever. Mm. These are guys who put their lives on the line you know, one of the divers uh, actually died, uh, one of the Thai divers. But it's, you know, that kind of heroism and that moment when they were saved was a unifying moment for humanity. It was like, I can't describe it as anything else. It was like you couldn't just go, bloody hell, that is a good thing. That yeah. is good news. That is really bloody good news. Yeah. And in those moments when we band together, I remember, I remember when the shuttle... You know, on the tragic side, you remember when the, the, the Challenger blew up. Mm. I remember uh, when Concorde crashed. I was living in America at that point. And uh, actually, it was the reason I left America. I left Los Angeles because I was watching the news and Concorde crashed. Concorde was just the most beautiful plane, a really beautiful piece of engineering to look at. So elegantly designed. Mm. Uh, and anyway, it crashed. And this woman came on the, the main news that I was watching, like an ABC style or Los Angeles ABC, whatever it was, but it was a main news. It wasn't some weird offbeat channel. And she said, after the report, let's just hope there are no famous people on that plane. Oh, my word. I, I'm like, no. I, 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 rang, I said, who do I ring up to get this woman fired? 
Like, that's not acceptable. Mm. That's just not acceptable. Like, I won't have it. I was literally sitting there. I said, I will not have it. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm going, well, so, you know, it's just in the No, I said, no, I won't have it. I won't have, won't have that. And, and I actually said, you know what? I'm leaving the country because I can't deal with not being able to address this in some way. If it was the BBC, I would have rung up the BBC. I would have complained, you know, whatever. It's ITV, Channel 4, you know, there's a, a response to that. Mm. No response whatsoever. Let's just hope there are no famous people on that plane. And I, I said, I'm out. <laughs> I mean, they wanted me out anyway, because no one wanted to. <laughs> but, so yeah, moments. And then you've got moments in film. So it's not my favourite film, but it's up there. And it's The Elephant Man. So the film is about, at this point in the film, and you, you remember, it's the first time you're watching it, you've got this creature who can't talk. He's a... You know, I think they call him an imbecile. You know, he's unable to do anything. And Hopkins has brought him into this hospital and he's trying to teach him how to say, my name is John Merrick. And he teaches him this psalm, a little bit of a psalm. And then he brings in Gielgud to the room. And John Hurt, as the elephant man, is sort of trying to give a performance. And Anthony Hopkins is there saying, what's your name? He says, my name is John Merrick. And Gilgood says, well, you know, are you enjoying it here or something like that? And, and John Hurt goes, my name is John Merrick. Repeats the same thing. And he says, well, what's it like? Are you doing? Well, everyone's been very kind. And he says the same thing. Gilgood asks him another question. He says, well, everyone's been very kind. And then he starts to recite this psalm, but it's obviously what Hopkins has taught him. Mm. So Hopkins and Gilgood leave the room with this elephant man in. And as they're walking down the stairs, Gilgood says, it's very tragic, but he doesn't belong here. He belongs somewhere where he can just be looked after. He, you know, he basically doesn't have the intelligence or the, the wit to be here. Mm. And in the background, you hear John Hurt reciting this psalm. And as Gilgood and Hopkins are going down the stairs, Hopkins suddenly goes, I, don't, I didn't teach him that. And Hopkins goes back. And it's this wonderful scene where Hopkins goes in and says, why did, I didn't teach you this psalm. And, and uh, John Hurt goes, no, it's one of my favourite psalms. Wow. And you sit there and, and you see the humanity on Hopkins's face, that realisation of what this poor man has gone through. Mm. And it is impossible not to feel this general sense of humanity of how much pain. And then you see it etched into Hopkins's face of what this guy has gone through. And again, it's that sort of human, it's just a fantastic moment because you agree with Gilgood. Mm. And then you get this realisation, it just knocks you for six. So those kind of moments that you get in films that, uh, you know, do more than you think, they resonate. So I'm a fan of moments. Very good. What a great actor Anthony Hopkins is. I think he's the best actor, you know, of his generation by some measure. Yeah, I agree. To outact Gilgood is pretty impressive. Yeah. I saw Gilgood when I was a young actor. And for many years, I told everybody that it was a really marvellous moment at the end of this play where he sat there and realised that everything in his life had been worthless. I said, and then he, he cried. Tears rolled down his face and slowly the lights faded. And somebody's, after many years of telling people this story about how great an actor he was, somebody said, where were you sitting? And I said, oh, I was, I was a student. I was in the gods. And they said, how do you know he cried? And I thought about it. And I thought, I, I don't. I don't know. I couldn't have seen it. Right, yeah. He didn't move. I just knew he was crying. Yeah. Those are the things that I tend to remember. I remember once I was uh, watching It's a Wonderful Life on a plane. Yeah. Going to Los Angeles. And I watched it once and was in tears from about 20 minutes in. <laughs> and then I watched it again and I was in tears from about 10 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, those moments in films that get you in the gut. Mm. I love those moments. And you do it with your family as well. I don't remember everything that I do with my kids, but I'll remember a moment when someone smiled or laughed for the first time and we shared a joke. Yes. So I remember specific moments much mm. more than I remember hours or half hours. It's a useful thing to have, I think, to have a memory like that. To have a memory that remembers wonderful moments in your life, you can replay them. Most people have to rely on something that they filmed or something that they've got a photograph of to remind them of things. I sort of have to, you know, there are some people who go, remember 1967 and they'll remember 1967. I have to go, hang on, 1967, I was five 
let me think around where I was fine, where was I living, what I, and then you find the moments, not directly, but by going around the area. Yeah. It helps with editing. I'll tell you that, it helps with editing. Because every time I watch it, I go, this is great. Who wrote this? <laughs> 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 this is hilarious. Well, well. <laughs> oh, Gary, okay. I'm going to put those magic little moments in film and in life into the time capsule for you. That's number three. Ah, so I think I'm going to go for... Right, okie-cokie, time for some adverts, which is usually the way in the middle of a podcast, unless you're an Acast Plus member. Uh, not that we've got round to making that facility available just yet, but soon, I promise. In the meantime, we will be back very shortly. Enjoy the ads. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's hurry back to the director and writer, Gary Signor, and discover what else he wants to cram into his time capsule. I'm going to go for the U.K., and I'm going to go for two countries. Um, I think the UK is a fantastic country, and I can't imagine living in another country. I can go out here, and as you know from Hapless, I can go out here and talk to the person next to me at a cafe. People quantify Britishness or United Kingdomness, and it, I accept that it's very, 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 very difficult. But there is something that this country has, and, and it, just because it's impossible to quantify, doesn't mean that it's not there. No. Right. I would guess that some of it is connected to the Church of England. And I'm a big fan of the Church of England for a couple of very good reasons. One is the Church of England is much more welcoming to people who are Jewish. Right. I mean, not originally. I think, you know, even when they, <laughs> they first founded it, it was still a little bit dodgy. But the fact that the Church of England, that is a church in every village. Yeah, I think an approach, it's a conservatism with a small c that is prevalent. And again, I'm going to come across like a fuddy-duddy because it's going to make it sound like I want to go back to the 1970s when the Sunday shops were closed and all the rest of it. And I really don't because I think it's still there. And if I have a gripe with the Archbishop of Canterbury, which I may as well do, is that he never really speaks out. And, and you know, when he does speak out, he's having to talk all the time about the same thing, which is making vicars gay or not making vicars gay. Mm. But, you know, there are things that he could be speaking out about on a constant basis in a way that you might want him to, because you're not going to get it from the politicians. Recently, he did speak out against sending immigrants to Rwanda. You know, you sort of expect your religious leaders to do that, to mm -hmm. sort of come forward. Um, and in, not to be Mary Whitehouse, but to to 
you know, Mary Whitehouse was, uh, you know, my God, she would turn in her grave if she saw what was going on today. But, you know, <laughs> the truth is lots of people read the Daily Mail and there's nothing we can do about it, right? So we may as well accept that part of Britain, as much as it is the people who read The Guardian, is the people who read the Daily Mail. Yeah. And so it's about understanding, empathising with people. And that's not about taking sides, which sadly has become, there's a sort of Americanization of things where mm-hmm. you, you know, the newspapers and the TV channels are all like, oh, I'm a right-wing channel, I'm a left-wing channel, I'm a Fox channel, I'm a Murdoch channel. It's like, no, the point is to tell the news. Mm. It's a real problem for me when people say, uh, I know I'm going to get going to onto this in a minute. When people go, oh, I don't understand, even as extreme as this, I don't understand why a suicide bomber would blow himself up. And I go, no, okay, I don't agree with a suicide bomber. But it's my job to try and understand why someone would go to those lengths. Mm. I don't have to have sympathy for them. No, or agree with them. No. Or agree. In order to stop it, I have to understand mm-hmm. what takes someone to that level. Yeah. And when you look at things historically, we can see that there were kamikaze pilots in the Second World War who were doing the same thing, committing suicide, but trying to take some people down. Okay, they were military. Mm. But you know, the First World War, millions of Brits went off to fight for what they believed in and got slaughtered. So the idea that somehow or other we can't empathise with the human mind and its frailties Mm. is unhelpful. And I think Britain tries to do that. And what it said is best when it tries to empathise. But the words are so difficult. You know, someone will get kicked out of Parliament for saying, I understand why someone... No, no, it's reasonable to use the word understand. That is a reasonable word. Not agree. Don't want it to happen again. No. But I have to find the reasoning as to why these things happened so that we can try and stop it again. Mm. And also, like, Britain is so... I mean, one of the... It's so small, but I take my kids. There's a bridge near us that goes over the North Circular Road. And I've got kids who are like old and young. I've got kids who are now early 20s and who are nine and seven. But through both of their lives, I take them to this bridge that goes over the North Circular Road. And there's always a traffic jam. <laughs> it's on the bridge with a packet of crisps. And we wave at every car that goes by. <laughs> and it's just, you are bringing joy. And people are hooting and honking and waving and flashing their lights. And all the truck drivers are hooting. And my kids get enormous pleasure out of it. And you're bringing some elements of joy to people who are stuck in traffic. And it doesn't take much. And and I just feel that is also part of Britain. It's like people, you know, they see something small. They see two kids with a packet of cheese and onion, giving them a wave. And they go, well, I'm going to wave back. That's nice. Mm. I'll beat my horn. That's nice. Uh, And it's easy to help people. Yes. Uh, But we are surrounded by examples of that all the time, I think. We just don't notice it. We notice things that are wrong. They're the things we make note of. But you walk past, I mean, I think it's unusual to see somebody begging on the street and them not to have a pack of sandwiches or a coffee next to them. And somebody would have just bought it and brought it up and said, that's for you. Yeah. And also, like, on a mega scale, live aid. Mm. It happens here. Children in need. It happens here. And I can't think of another country that's got children in need. No. That raises millions upon millions of pounds for the generosity of the people who live here. Yes. Somehow, we accept these things. We, we welcome them. We embrace them. So when people go, what's Britishness? I can't define it totally, but I can understand that there is something in the water, perhaps, but there is something that is different. So I think there is something that, that is worth celebrating about the UK. We mm. just have to find it. Absolutely. Now, you did say there were two countries. Oh, so the other one is Israel. And this is so simple. I don't understand why anyone needs to argue about it, because it goes back to a simple thing. If Israel had existed in the 1930s, there would have been no Holocaust. Thank you very much. End of story. The fact is, there are two religions, Islam and Christianity, both of them, in their fundamental texts, are anti-Jewish, let's say. The New Testament, the Jews killed God, right? You're never going to get over that. You can The Pope can make his, oh, we apologise. But still, come Easter, somewhere in the world, many places, a Catholic church is going to be going, uh, well, the Jews were responsible because they said, no, kill Jesus instead of Barabbas. You know, mm-hmm. So you can't get over it because it's in the text and there's a holiday every year. So not just for Jews, but you need a place where you can go. 
if you get schmeist. Yeah. And it's happening in, in Hungary now. So we're not going to get schmeist in the UK because the UK is Church of England, right? The UK is, has a different mentality. I was never going to be worried about Corbyn being elected because he couldn't have carried this country into an anti-Semitic situation. He just could not have done it. It doesn't fit with Britishness. That's where people who said that, you know, the soul of the UK was up for grabs. It wasn't. It was never going to be the case. There's still an element in this country, and there always has been, but I don't think it's ever been as strong as it is in other countries. No. And 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 I understand, again, we're talking about understand, I understand why people demonize Israel, because if you're under 40, right, then Israel, all you've ever seen, and it's not young British people's job to spend their time researching why the hell this has happened, right? You don't expect everyone, oh, let me Google. Jewish history, right, <laughs> to find out that we were chucked out of the UK, we were chucked out of France, we were chucked out of Spain, we mm -hmm. were chucked out of Portugal. You know, we have been chucked out by virtue of religious legislation mm. and a certain degree of cleverness on the part of the leaders. We've been chucked out of every country. Mm. And so you need a place of refuge. And it's not just Jews who need a place of refuge. Those Uyghur Muslims need a place of refuge. But anyone who says, you know, that there's no place for a place of refuge, I just go, I understand the Palestinian issue needs to be sorted. I want it to be sorted. Believe me, I want it to be sorted. But if Israel had existed in the 1930s, you wouldn't have had all these people being slaughtered mm. because they would have had an escape route. And Britain didn't take them all in. And America didn't take them all in. And that's why you need a place of escape for people who are... Persecuted. Run the, risk, run the risk of being slaughtered. Indeed. And so uh, I, I was in Israel recently, and they're nowhere near as funny as the Brits. <laughs> well, I don't mind. The great thing is now that we all agree, I think, that uh, we're perfectly happy for Jews to live here. We just don't want any more Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> so much trouble that comes from religion. And I would have put religion, I probably have got religion in my things to bury. But uh, at the same time, there have been great things that have come out of it. Uh, mm. People, great inspiration in art, and and it offers comfort to people. And uh, absolutely, that thing you were saying. Let's give people space. Yeah, be British about it. Exactly. Very good. Well, I will put the UK and I'll put Israel into the time capsule as your fourth thing that you want to keep. But now we have one thing, or one set of things that you want to bury and forget. It's so difficult. <laughs> It's so difficult. Um, can I talk about some things that I just hate and, mm -hmm. then, and then I'll get on to the one I better? So any TV program that starts with the most exciting scene it can possibly give you, and then after about a minute, it says three weeks earlier. That is, <laughs> they should just be, they go. So, <laughs> just don't do it. It is like starting The Godfather with Sonny being shot on the causeway, and then you go six months later and you go to the wedding scene. It's like, <laughs> it is so stupid, it gives us no intelligence. It assumes that we are stupid and we need to be grabbed in the first 20 seconds of something. Mm. And it's childish, and I wish it would be done with. But anyway, we will move on from that. I've got the Cannes Film Festival there, but that's only because I hated my first experience. I, I now, okay, no, so I'll go, you know, can I give you three choices? Okay. Okay, because that's the best way to do it. So I've got... Humility for the sake of it. <laughs> One. Yes. Explain that a bit. Well, so everyone's been going, oh, the Queen was so humble. She was so humble. Yeah, but she was humble, but she was incredibly privileged woman. And so she could afford to be humble because she was in a position of power. Mm. So, yes, she was humble, but she was in a position of power. When I make Leon the pig farmer and it gets great feedback and no one's bloody interested in distributing it, I can't afford to be humble. If I'm humble about it, it goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. If I'm humble about hapless and say, oh, I've made this great, but I don't really, I don't want to push it. Yeah, I won't go on about it. I won't yeah. go on about it. Then I, then I am humble and I die and I'm humble. And then after I've died, people go, oh, that was really good. And then you sell the house. Yeah, that's like Van Gogh. You know, that's not good enough. You know, you, you, I'd like to be able to, my family to experience, and yes, selfishly me, to experience something of the feedback now. And so... And, you know, a black woman who goes and sits on the wrong part of a bus is not humble. She's made a decision that she's going to change the world. That's not humility. That's confidence. Mm. And the people who have changed the world have not had humility. They've had the balls 
to go up and do something that is beyond the rules, that breaks the rules. And so I just think sometimes, you know, this word humility is like, oh, he's really, and the word, again, it's a British thing, but it's not a very nice British thing. Oh, look how humble they are when they accept their award. <laughs> no, some people are putting their bloody necks on the line. And as artists or creatives, they're putting their necks on the line. And humility is not necessarily the right thing because you could get you nowhere. If you're humble, you can get nowhere in life. And so I don't approve of humility just for the sake of it. Right. So that's that out. And uh, see, I did think fancy dress parties for adults. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, you, 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 Mike, they're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> it's a nightmare. You get an invitation, someone's 40th or 50th birthday party, fancy dress, and you just want to go, no. I'm not prepared to dress up in fancy dress. No, I always think that it's an attempt by people who think, well, unless we do something, this part is going to be really dull. We don't all have to dress up as vicars and tarts. Right. And people spend a fortune on it. You know, they don't have to go out. You, know, you can't just go to the party. You have to plan. Go to a shop and have to outdo so-and-so who's gone to the other shop and hired something from angels. And there is actually, there is weirdly, there is a Jewish festival called Purim which used to be a kids' festival. It was basically for kids, as far as I remember it. It was uh, the story of Esther. But, and, and the kids used to dress up, right? And you were eight years old or nine years old, and you dress up as a prince or a whatever, Prince Charming. Mm. And now the adults are doing it. <laughs> the adults are getting dressed up. The rabbi gets dressed up. <laughs> as, 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 and you're like, this is childish. This is, this is for the children. It's not for you. But also, those things are fantastically uncomfortable. You go to a oh. party, you want to wear jeans and a T-shirt. Right, exactly. I can't even put a cracker on my head. <laughs> <laughs> because I regard that as fancy dress and, and unacceptable. So I'll, I'll open the cracker, but actually putting it in my head, no, it just looks silly. I, don't, I, won't, I won't do it. <laughs> um, so I'm not a fan of fancy dress at all. But I think probably the one I have to go for, and it is going to be serious, is words that have no easily understood meaning. Just get rid of them. Just get, right. I, was, I did very badly philosophy briefly at university. And you'd have these conversations where the guy was, well, what are you seeing on? I'm sitting on a chair. How do you know it's a chair? Because <laughs> it's a fucking chair and I'm sitting on it, right? So don't argue with me about what is a chair and what is a table and what is a computer. Words have meaning, right? <laughs> Words that have meaning are easy to communicate, right? But if I say to you, you're an anti-Semite, what does that mean? Mm. I don't know. You can define it till the cows come home. What's a capitalist? Well, you can want to earn money, but not want to be an uber capitalist, like not want to be, you know, like greedy. Yes. So all of these ism words are impossible to understand. The thing is, I think these words have become so divisive. The black and white world. Yeah, the black and white world. Is to maybe use the wrong phrase. <laughs> <laughs> and then you end up defining them. So we have to define all of these things, but everyone's definition is entirely different. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our news is taken up with people defining instead of just going, right, okay, like, so this is what I would do. You take action on specific things that could be crimes that could result in danger or death or harm or whatever. Mm -hmm. Grenfell, I would say, immediately change the cladding on those bloody towers. Immediately. What are you waiting for? <laughs> what the fuck are you waiting for? It's the next day. It's not a discussion. No, it's not a question of cost, is it? It's no, absolutely, we can't let this happen again. Let's change every building that's been done this way, whatever the cost. Borrow the bloody money, right? We know we can borrow money. If you need to get it from the companies, get it from the company. Take the cladding off those buildings now, like today. Mm -hmm. So there are priorities. And just arguing about words is not a priority. No. We want action that translates into making people's lives safer and better, not arguing about the bloody definition of words. Very good. That's it. I have had my say. And you said it without using any of those bloody words. Well done. I didn't know you'd done philosophy. I mean, <laughs> my philosophy has always been I am... Therefore, I think I am, <laughs> which is good enough for me. I can't stand philosophy. My brother read a book at one point, came back, and I looked at it in the back of the car. It was called The Incoherence of the Incoherence. <laughs> I'm not even getting past the title. There's no chance. <laughs> like, how could that be a book? 
Why, why waste the time writing it or reading it? Have you not seen the film of it? Anthony Hopkins, brilliant in it. <laughs> oh, Gary, how lovely to talk to you. Great to see you. Yes. And I look forward to our fantastic television series, Hapless, which deserves every piece of promotion, and we are not going to be humble about it. It's bloody brilliant. So when it comes out, I'll be delighted. I will be telling everyone. Hopefully from your mouth to God's ears, as they say. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you. Always is. Thank you, Mike. Look after yourself. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Gary Signor. Please do subscribe to, rate, or even review this podcast. Actions that are very useful if you're trying to build an audience and encourage new listeners, which we are, obviously. In fact, you can witness those efforts on a daily basis by following me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where we talk of little else apart from the occasional bit about politics, which I tend to bang on about. Sorry if you're a Tory, we can't all be perfect. My grandchildren, of course, are mentioned occasionally, along with the odd photograph. There's jobs I might be doing, and most fascinating of all, my garden. (laughs) Sounds irresistible, doesn't it? No, no, please, hang on, come back. Right, look, if you'd like the theme tune, then you can hear it any time of the day or night on Spotify. Just search My Time Capsule, the theme tune. Yeah, I bet you could have guessed that. It was written by Pastor P's Music. This cast-off production for Acast was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Now, if you happen to have any thoughts about who would make a good guest on My Time Capsule, we'd be delighted to hear from you. And if you're a Hollywood A-lister and fancy chatting, then just, you know, call me. My number is 07973 216 495. That number again, 021 Four, two, eight, nine, three, one, forty-four. if you're calling from the United States. Lovely. Or you could just send me a message on social media. I can promise you that our standards never drop below almost adequate. Unlike my jokes, which are barely even that. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, Cos Iceberg Little Gem. Oh, yes, I've got a lot of letters after my name. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.